Jeremiah chapter 34. We're going to look at the first seven verses. It says the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon and all his army and all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion and all the people fought against Jerusalem and all its cities saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, go and speak to Zedekiah, the king of Judah and tell him, thus says the Lord, behold, I will give the city into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall Burn it with fire and you shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand. Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon. He shall speak with you face to face and you shall go to Babylon. Yet the word of the Lord, yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you. You shall not die by the sword. You shall die in peace as in the ceremonies of your fathers, the former kings who were before you. So they shall burn incense for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have pronounced the word, says the Lord. Then Jeremiah, the prophet, spoke all these words to Zedekiah, the king of Judah in Jerusalem. When the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah that were left against Lachish and Azekah, for only these fortified cities remained of the cities of Judah. There was a former United States senator, John Morris Shepard. He was a senator in the 1920s and the 1930s. He was famous for drafting the legislation. That would result in prohibition. He said, a nation that cannot preserve itself ought to die. Die in the grasp of evils. It is too feeble to overthrow. We begin a new section in the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 34, 35, and 36. In this section, the Lord warns the wicked king, Zedekiah, about the coming judgment. Why is there a coming judgment? Because they were unwilling to throw off the wickedness that had enveloped the country. They had stopped listening to God and they had stopped obeying God and they went in a direction far from God. And when Zedekiah ignores the warning, the city of Jerusalem is captured. Zedekiah is taken into captivity and then the Lord will send Jeremiah on a search, on a search for godly models in Judah. At this point in the narrative, Jerusalem and Judah are on the very precipice of extinction. And those of you who have been following along in the book of Jeremiah know that the Lord has been very, very, very patient with Judah and Jerusalem. He has sent prophets with his word. You'll remember the nation had a miraculous heritage Remember, Jacob and his family went into Egypt to uh, uh, to avoid extinction. And there they grew as a family. But in that growth, they became 
a people who were enslaved and they were in bondage. And you'll remember for 400 years they served Pharaoh and then God raised up Moses. And you'll remember how he liberated the people. Really, it was God using Moses. God preserved them in the wilderness and then led by Joshua into the promised land. They were preserved during the time of the judges. They were united under the kingdom of David and Solomon. And so over a thousand years have gone by. And they have been a proud people and a God-honoring people. There was a temple. There was a division. The northern kingdom was apostate and collapsed under the weight of its own apostasy. And now Judah and Jerusalem is beginning to collapse. And the historian might ask the question, well, why is this going to happen? Why is the city going to fold and why instead of a free people, are they going to be an enslaved people? And the historian might say they made unwise alliances with foreign powers, but we know the real reason. We know the real reason Judah and Jerusalem were looking around for help instead of looking up. And people can point to all kinds of problems in this world and in this country and in our nation and in our families. And they can point to the problem of the social problems and they can point to the drug problems and they can point to the deep divisions politically and socially and culturally and racially. But the truth is people are looking around for help instead of looking up. They still really don't believe that the problem is sin. And they still don't really believe that the solution is Jesus Christ. The leaders have refused to hear God's word. They've refused to believe God's word. They've refused to obey God's word. And instead of repenting and turning to God, here's what's happened. They have hardened their heart against the Lord. They've hardened their heart against his word. They've trusted their own instinct and their own lust and their own passion and their own wisdom. And so they've turned from God. But there's something even worse that's going to happen in the next few chapters. Not only do they trust their own instinct, their own lust, their own passion and their own wisdom. But they're not they're now going to do something even worse than that. The leaders of Judah and the leaders of Jerusalem are not only going to not obey God. They're going to attempt to destroy God's word. You know, it's one thing for you to hear about God's word and not do it. And it's another thing for you to take your Bible and throw it in the trash. But how much worse is it when the person takes your Bible and the person next to you and that person's Bible and that person's Bible and they're not content? Not only are they willing to get rid of their own Bible, they're going to get rid of everybody's Bible. That the word of God has to disappear. So once again, Jeremiah reminds us that if we ignore God's warning and if we ignore God's word... The right expectation every single time is judgment. You know, for the person who says, oh, imagine there's a voice whispering in your ear. It's not going to happen this time. You're going to be the one person 
who is going to get away with it. You're going to be the one person that judgment isn't going to fall on. You see, you're free to trust your own instinct, your own lust, your own passion, and your own wisdom. God understands. And even if you make a big mistake, it doesn't really matter. But it really does. And it's going to bring this country to ruin. And for Judah and Jerusalem, a certain death. The city's made its decision. It's going to rebel against God and it's going to reject God. Do you ever look around and ask the question, what about our country? Will our country rebel against God and reject God? The rebellion and the rejection seems to be on an ongoing basis. What's going to turn it around? What are the signs of a nation that's getting ready to collapse? Edward Gibbon, almost 200 years ago, wrote a book called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And he listed five major causes of the collapse of the Roman Empire. He wrote this almost 200 years ago about a country that survived from 200 B.C. to about 4 to 500 A.D. And this is what he noted as the five major causes for the decline and then the destruction of the empire. Number one, the disintegration or the breakdown of the family unit and an increase in divorce. Number two, the increase and rise and burden of taxes and extravagant spending by the civilization. Number three, the ever increasing desire for pleasure and entertainment, even if it meant killing people. Think the Colosseum. Number four, the continental or the continual production of armaments and outfitting of legions to face the ever increasing threat of external attacks from the enemy. Number five, the decay and collapse of religion and honor and decency and an ever increasing manifestation of bizarre religious practices that left people without a uniform faith so much so that everyone just decided that they were going to do whatever they wanted. Sound familiar? Verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon and all his army and all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion and all the people fought against Jerusalem and all its cities. Now, let me put you in in a frame of reference where you understand. Dateline 588 B.C. The armies have surrounded the city of Jerusalem. The territory is about to collapse. Two fortified cities remain. Lachish, which is about 25 miles from Jerusalem, and Azekah, which is about 18 miles from Jerusalem. We know that from verse 7 if you look down. In 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 1, it says that the invasion began in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign on the tenth day of the tenth month. Zedekiah assumed the throne in 597 B.C., Do the math, click backwards in time or forwards in time, if you will, 588 B.C. That's the date. Jeremiah is not in prison. It says in verse two, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, go and speak to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and tell him, 
Thus says the Lord, behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall burn it with fire. Now, why does the word of the Lord come to Zedekiah? The reason why I'm asking you this is because I want you to begin to do something when you're reading the Bible. I want you to start asking questions. I want you to look at it and I want you to say, why is this happening? Why does the word of the Lord come to Zedekiah? Clearly, the city is under threat and destruction. It's going to collapse. Those of you who have been following along in the book of Jeremiah know that because of their rebellion, their rejection, they're facing judgment. So why does God send a prophet to the leader and say, guess what? Judgments come. The answer might shock you and it might surprise you. The reason why is because God is giving Zedekiah one more chance to repent, to return. Haven't you ever wondered why God gave you the opportunity to go to church, to open up your Bible, to wake up this morning? There's a reason why you're not in prison or jail, or in the hospital. There's a reason why God has allowed you to wake up one more day. If there's something going on in your life and the Lord says, open up your Bible, read it. And you see the promise, and you see the grace, and you see the mercy, and you see the offer of forgiveness. There's one more opportunity. There's one more opportunity. There's one more opportunity to turn, to turn, to say, Lord, maybe I've done things wrong in the past, but I I, I want to do it right now. We know that in chapter 21 in the past, and we know in chapter 37, Zedekiah will send envoys to Jeremiah. and, And basically, they'll say, Prophet Jeremiah, tell us what we need to know. And once again, God gives the king the opportunity. And what what is this opportunity? It's to repent. It's to save the city from ruin. And if the king will respond, listen carefully. The city doesn't have to be burned. He can give up at this point and say, you know what? The prophet has come to me. He's he's informed me that we're under the judgment of God and that this is a God ordained event and that we are under the discipline and the chastisement and the judgment of God. And I'm ready to accept it. And here's what will happen. And you shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand. Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon. He shall speak with you face to face and you shall go to Babylon. The prophet is warning the king that the royal family won't escape the judgment. They'll be taken captive. They'll die in peace in Babylon. In other words, the king's life, the king's life will be spared If he obeys the Lord, the city will be spared. If he obeys the Lord, are there going to be consequences? Yes. Is the judgment going to be profound? Yes. And every once in a while, God will show up and he'll say, 
I need you to turn from this sin and I need you to turn to Jesus. I need you to abandon that. I need you to walk away from the drug. I need you to walk away from the alcohol. I need need you to walk away from the debt. I need you to walk away from the self-destructive behavior. I need you to walk away from the self-destructive I need you to walk away from the suicidal thoughts. I need you to walk away. I need you to walk away. I need you to walk away from those things that are destroying your wife, your husband, your children, your family. I need you to walk away from it. And and if you'll walk away from it right now, guess what? I'll spare your life. I'll spare your marriage. I'll spare your children. One act of faith. One act of courage. Could have saved the city from ruin. But he won't listen to the prophet. He's afraid of what his counselors are saying. The king is a willing pawn. And he listens to their bad advice. And he refuses the counsel of Jeremiah. And sometimes God will place a mentor in your life and he'll speak to you and he'll say, please walk away from that wicked relationship. Please walk away from that uh, drug. Please walk away from that situation. Please stop ruining your life. Please embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Please do yourself a favor. And it says in verse four, yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. And by the way, when the Bible, and you should underline verse 4, yet hear the word of the Lord. Whenever you see in the Bible that expression, hear the word of the Lord, it doesn't just simply mean listen to what is being said. It means listen and respond. Listen and obey. And so when he says, hear the word of the Lord, it always includes obeying. And so when you open up your Bible and you hear the word of the Lord, you hear the promise that's being made. Implicit each and every time is obedience. We might read this hear and obey the word of the Lord in verse five. You shall die in peace as the ceremonies of your fathers, the former kings who were before you. So they shall burn incense for you and lament for you, saying, alas, Lord, for I pronounce the word, says the Lord. Here is a picture of the funeral service. In other words, Zedekiah is the king. And like the kings before him, there was a place of honor. There was a position. Um, there was a public proclamation and an opportunity to honor him as a nation. People will often ask me, are you concerned about this country? Yes. Are you concerned about this president? Yes. Well, do you think he's the worst president ever? I go, you know what? That's not my concern. My concern isn't whether or not he's the worst president. My concern is, will he be the last president? And that should shock you because Zedekiah is going to be the last king. And make no mistake about it, the United States of America will have a final president. By God's grace and God's mercy, 
There might be one more president and there might be another president and there might be another president. But if you love your country and if you value your country and if you care about your country, you should pray every single day for your president. You should pray that God will give him wisdom, that God will fill his heart with a sense of justice and righteousness. You should pray for him. You should pray for him every single day and you should pray for the Supreme Court and you should pray for the leaders. You should pray for the senators. You should pray that God will give them wisdom and understanding because their job is an enormous job and they have profound responsibilities. And the decisions that they make are going to affect this country and affect you and affect your family and affect your children. And if you ever, ever, ever cared even one bit for your country, pray for your president. Pray for this country. Pray that God will give them wisdom. The burning of the incense was a type of funeral service. And Jeremiah is saying, if you will respond, if you will obey, guess what? There is an honorable exit strategy that I have made available for you. And in verse 6 it says, Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, the king of Judah in Jerusalem. You know, it's one thing to confront a leader and it's another thing to confront him to his face. I rarely have this opportunity, but once in my life I did have an opportunity to speak to a former famous president. And I said, Mr. President, I understand that you had a heart attack. Yeah, I had a, I had a heart attack. And I go, well, you know, it's great that God has spared your life. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that God has spared my life. And I said to the president, what gives you the most satisfaction? And he said, raising money for worthy causes. And I said, Mr. President, it could be that God has spared your life because he has unfinished business with you. He has unfinished business with your soul and he has unfinished business with your spirit. You see, every day that you wake up is another day that you get to trust God and trust Jesus And in verse 7 it says, When the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah that were left against Lachish and Azekah, for only these fortified cities remained of the cities of Judah. By the way, in verse 7, Lachish means obstinate. It's a word that means hard to be captured. A century before Jeremiah, when the Assyrians invaded Palestine, Lachish was a city that was even larger than Jerusalem. It was a big city. It was a profound city. It was a fortified city. In 1935, a series of pottery shards were discovered with lists and letters. And the commander of the outpost of Lachish was a guy named Yahosh. And some suggest that there's a letter, letter number four, which was written possibly days before Jeremiah's message to the king. Hosea writes, quote, let my Lord know that we are watching for the signals of Lachish, according to all the indications which my Lord has given. For we cannot see Azekah. Probably Azekah had fallen shortly after Lachish was destroyed. These are the two strongholds holding out. Why am I even talking about the, the archaeological discovery in 1935? Because guess what? The Bible is true. 
It isn't just an amazing set of tales. The things that we're reading and the things that we're looking at, these things really happened. There was a real city in Jerusalem. There was a real king, Zedekiah. There was a real prophet, Jeremiah. There was a real collapse of this country. There was a real refusal and rebellion to trust God. And there was a real catastrophe. Just as real as your life. Just as real as your life. Just as real as your marriage and just as real as your job and just as real as your circumstances. There's not one single archaeological discovery that has ever been made, ever, that undermines what the Bible says. That should fill your heart with great joy. That what you're reading is really true. Azekah means a field dug over. 11 miles north of Lachish, 18 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Rehoboam fortified this city in 2 Chronicles 11.9. It was occupied even until after the exile. Once the children of, of Judah and Jerusalem are taken captive, they'll go into Babylon. They'll spend 70 years there and then they'll return and they'll occupy the city once again. And then there's the plea. Look at verse 8. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. After King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them. By the way, the word covenant is brith. It usually means a contract between equals. And so Zedekiah had made a covenant with the people who were at Jerusalem. Note, to proclaim liberty to them. In what way? Verse 9, that every man should be set free, his male and female slave, a Hebrew man or woman, that no one should keep a Jewish brother in bondage. Think for a moment. Pause for a moment. The city is under siege. It's ready to collapse. The Egyptians have sent an army from the south to the north to confront the Babylonians. But the people under siege are thinking, you know what? We're Jews. And it doesn't make sense to have slaves. And we need to ban slavery. In verse 10 it says, Now when all the princes and all the people who had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should be set free, his male and female slaves, that no one should keep them in bondage anymore, they obeyed and they let them go. There was an emancipation proclamation. All the slave owners participated. In verse 10 it says, That no one should keep them in bondage anymore. The implication of the proclamation, let them go. Free them. Free them now. Free them forever. Now, at some point during the siege, the king and the people made a covenant in the temple. We're going to learn about that in verse 15 to free all the, the, the Jewish slaves. Now, remember, remember, remember. According to the law of Moses, a Jewish master must liberate all Jewish slaves at the end of seven years of service. That's Exodus 21, verses 1 through 11. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 12 through 18. People say, well, what does the Bible teach about slavery? Well, here's what it teaches. It teaches that if you incur a debt, you should pay the debt. Well, what happens if you can't pay the debt? 
then sometimes people would sell themselves into service or they would sell their wife or they would sell their children and they would agree that they would work for a period of time. And because guess what? What you do matters. The covenants and the oaths and the the responsibilities that you enter into, they matter. The Bible doesn't say you should get something for nothing or that you should get stuff for free. The Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. And sometimes the people would have a catastrophe. And they would have to sell themselves into slavery. But even under those catastrophic circumstances, the Bible required that you let them go at the end of seven years. The Jews had ignored the law for years. They had ignored God's word. They had ignored God's law. And now when the city is getting ready to collapse, when their whole world is caving in on them, here's what somebody says. Maybe now's a good time to obey God. Hey, yeah. Right. We haven't obeyed God in the past. True. So why are why are they releasing the slaves? Do you remember in the Civil War? When the North fought against the South? Did the northern people free slaves? Why? So that they could fight with them. Do you realize that the Emancipation Proclamation didn't make one slave free? Not one. Not one slave became free because of the Emancipation Proclamation. But you know what it did? It allowed the slave to be able to fight for himself or fight for herself. That's what it did. It allowed them to take control of their life. And it could very well be that because the city is under siege, remember that slaves were the obligation of their masters. It was the master's job to feed them, to clothe them, to provide for them. And so there might have been any wicked number of reasons for why they let him go. Because they didn't want to feed him, clothe them, or provide for them. Maybe they wanted them to fight for them. Maybe they thought if they just made a deal with God, if they make a bargain with God, a plea with God, look God, if you'll save us from this disaster, I'll start to honor you and obey you. Does this sound familiar? Lord, I know that in rebellion and disobedience, I've done a lot of terrible, horrible things. But hey, I've got a great idea. I'm going to honor you and obey you. And maybe if I can honor you and obey you, I can convince you to change your mind or to help me in my cause. Now, there were many practical benefits to freeing the slaves. Like I said, free men are more likely to fight. Freed slaves would have to fend for themselves. Look what it says in verse 11. But afterward, they changed their minds and made the male and female slaves return Whom they had set free and brought them into subjection as male and female slaves. What? Hey, we're going to honor God. Not really. We're going to let everybody go. Not really. We're going to pretend like we let them go, but then we're going to continue to treat them like slaves. We're going to continue to treat them in a disrespectful and a dishonorable fashion. We may think that there may have been a brief respite, an easing of the threat by the Babylonians when the Egyptians marched north 
This caused the slave owners to rethink the covenant and once again to enslave their brothers. But here's the deal. God didn't change his mind. The people may have changed their minds. So here's what they did. They go, okay, we're going to change our mind. Instead of dishonoring God, we're going to honor God. Okay, instead of honoring God, now we're going to dishonor God. Instead of obeying God, now we're going to disobey God. It could very well be that they thought, well, what's the use in obeying God's word? If it doesn't matter what we do, if honoring him and obeying him isn't going to change the outcome of my circumstances. But what does the Bible teach? We don't honor God and obey God based on how the circumstances of our life is going to end. We purpose in our heart that we're going to honor and obey God no matter what. So what are we to think of these dishonest masters? What are we to think of the people who disobeyed God, dishonored God, enslaved their own brothers and sisters, and then refused to let them go according to the dictates of the law, and then re-enslaved them? How should we think about that? Well, I think we need to be careful. Do you make promises to God only in tough times to take them back when you thought things got better? Okay, Lord, here's the deal. I promise I'll go to church. I promise I'll read my Bible. I promise I'll give to the work of the ministry. I promise I'll take the gifts and callings that you've placed in my life and I'll use it to your glory. But things get better and you forget the promise That you made to God. And Jeremiah will use the people's weakness and their failure to keep their vow as an opportunity to preach a sermon about Judah's treachery against the Lord. All the way from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Look what it says. Therefore, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Here's what he's saying. Here's how the sermon begins. Don't you remember? You were slaves. Don't you remember the oppression and don't you remember the isolation and don't you remember the wickedness? Don't you remember the hurt? Don't you remember all of the pain that went with being captive and being beholden to somebody else? I made a covenant with your fathers in that day. I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying at the end of seven years, let every man set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to him. And when he has Served you six years, you shall let him go free from you. But your fathers did not obey me nor incline their ear. Why? Question number one. Why were they slaves to begin with? Because of debt. Why debt? Because of the economy. What about the economy? People have to make a living. People have to have food to eat. They have to have a place to stay. They have to be able to do this and they have to be able to do that. But guess what? Slave labor generates a lot more economy. 
And with a lot more money comes a lot more greed. And with a lot more greed comes a lot more arrogance and conceit and injustice. And so they thought, God won't mind because it's all about the economy, right? But God says, no, it's all about my word. It's about you honoring and obeying me. There's a reason why the Lord does what the Lord does. And so he reminds them of their former slavery. And then he reminds them of, of debt and, and making good on debt and a way to pay down the debt and making good your obligations, but also exercising justice and dignity and propriety. And that once a person is paid the debt to let them go. And then in verse 15, then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight. Here's, here's the hope in verse 15. Guess what? You decided to do what was right in my sight. You said, the Bible says this, and this is what the Bible says that how you should honor me. And you read your Bible and you decided, hey, I'm going to do what God wants. Every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house, which is called by my name. In other words, the covenant or the vow was made in the temple. They went to the temple of God and they said, We swear by God that we are going to honor God, including liberating our brothers and sisters who we have unlawfully, illegally, inappropriately, unjustly made them slaves. And we're going to let them go because it was the right thing to do. It honored God. In other words, they made a conscientious effort. Okay, what we've done is wrong. And we're going to make it right. And that's a principle, by the way. When you've done something wrong, you make an attempt to make it right. The people agreed to obey the law. They turned around and then they disobeyed a a law. And it says, then you turned around and profaned my name. I want you to look at that word profaned. It's the Hebrew word halal. In the Latin, the word is profane. It means outside the temple. In the Hebrew, it came to pierce or to lay open or to give access to. When something was sacred, like the temple or the Sabbath, when you violated it, when you laid it open, when you beat a pathway through it, it was profane. In Leviticus 19.29, it says, do not profane your daughter by putting her to harlotry. In other words, don't sell your children into slavery or prostitution in order to make money because it's wicked and it's immoral and it's wrong. When you create child sexual slaves, it is wrong. Don't do it. And then it says, and every one of you brought back his male and female slaves whom he had set at liberty at their pleasure. That expression in verse 16 at their pleasure refers to something in the Hebrew culture where once a person had 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 served their time, done their duty and they were released. A person could make a choice. They could say, I love you, you love me, 
I love working here. I love being on staff with you. I love working at this place. I love working under these circumstances. And I know I've paid my obligation, but now I have a wife and I have children. And I genuinely love here and I I love being here. And I, I would like to remain as a hired servant, like an employee. In other words, the slave was offered a choice. And sometimes when you were very, very old or you were very, very sick, it was the best thing for your family because you were taken care of. But here's the punishment in verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you've not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty. Everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. Behold. I proclaim your liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword, to pestilence and to famine. And I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, remember, look and see what it's there for. So he says, therefore, look, see. There's a straight line of cause and effect from the social injustice to the political ruin. The Lord says, look. See, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty. I told you, everyone his brother and everyone his neighbor, proclaim liberty. Don't enslave them. Don't do it. By the way, people love freedom, don't they? People love to be free. People want to have freedom to do what? To do what they want to do. Even if that means disobeying God. You see, you may want freedom. And you're free. To experience the consequences of your freedom. And so the Lord says, oh, you want to be free? Okay. Now you're free. To the sword. To the pestilence. To the famine. You want freedom? Now you're free to experience all the consequences of your enslavement. You'll fall by the sword. You'll fall by the plague. You'll fall by famine. Jeremiah predicts a horrible death for all of the treacherous people who have participated in the covenant. And then they broke the covenant. The predictions, by the way, come true. We're going to find that out in verses 19 and 20. The Lord will remove his hedge of protection. He will remove his protective hand. They will die at the hands of their enemy. And and this was the strange thing. You want to be free? Okay, you're free. In the former Soviet Union, they would use the term liberate. We are going to liberate you, comrade. Liberate me for what? To serve Soviet Union. You are now liberated. You are liberated and now your life will be spent in making Soviet machine work. Is that liberation? Aldous Huxley wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a man of faith. He wrote, a man's difficulties begin when he's able to do exactly as he wants. Freedom is not the right to do as a person pleases, but the liberty to do as he ought. As a matter of fact, if you turn to your New Testament and you look at the book of Galatians, 
In Galatians chapter 5, it says, stand fast in verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. Here's what he's saying. Am I free to be a Jew? Yeah, you're free to be a Jew. Be a Jew. But then you're going to be obligated to do all of the things that the law requires. You're free in Christ. What does that mean? You're free to do whatever Jesus allows you to do and wants you to do. And what are we free not to do? Whatever Jesus doesn't want us to do. Richard John Newhouse wrote, quote, Freedom standing by itself inevitably degenerates into license. License, which is unbridled freedom, quickly becomes the enemy of freedom. You're free to do whatever you want. You mean unlimited drugs? Unlimited sex? Unlimited porn? Unlimited wickedness? Unlimited alcohol? You're free... Yeah, I'm free. I, don't, I, I never liked my liver anyway. Free to kill yourself? Free to destroy yourself? And in verse 18 it says, I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it. Now we get an insight into the covenant. Verse 18, when the king and the priests and the people made the covenant, they went into the temple. They killed a calf. They cut it in half and they walked in the sacrifice. The ceremony was a public vow and an oath that the people would honor the covenant and they would... Obey the terms of the covenant. It's found in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. So what's the meaning of cutting the calf in half? If they disobeyed the terms of the covenant, they're in effect saying, what happens to this cow is going to happen to you. What? Yeah, that's exactly what it means. Rabbi Sheldon Blank reconstructs the scene, quote, it was agreed and decided and done, done with noise and ceremony. First came the proclamation. They proclaimed liberty one to another. Princes participating a solemn ritual. They cut covenant. A calf was led in and slaughtered and butchered and divided down the middle. One half was laid over against the other with a passage between them. So we may infer from what little is told here and from Abram's ceremony and the attendant nightly vision in Genesis 15 and the covenanters walked the blood sprinkled path between the pieces. Probably too the agreement was read out loud and whether he spoke it or not each participant knew as he walked the path that he took on himself a conditional curse. If he failed to carry out this undertaking in the grisly fashion, he too would be butchered. The covenant? If I break my promise, you can do to me what we did to this cow. So what did you deserve? To be butchered. The Bible says that the soul that sins it shall surely die. Your sin means that you deserve to go to hell. 
And you deserve to stay in hell. But Jesus will become the lamb. Jesus will live the perfect life that you couldn't live. Jesus will die in excruciating pain, bearing the punishment that you deserve. Wicked men will arrest him and they will incarcerate him and they will beat him and they will butcher him and they will pin him to a cross and they will suspend the cross between heaven and earth and the full blunt force trauma will jar every single nerve in his body and for six long hours he will endure unbelievable pain and then he'll die and then he'll come back to life so God made a covenant with you God's covenant with you is I will do to Jesus what you deserve so imagine the person who says I don't care that you sent Jesus and I don't care that he died on the cross and I don't care that he bore my pain and I don't care that he was executed in my place. And here's what I'm willing to do. God, judge me based on what I've done. Really? Because that's exactly what the person is asking, even begging God. When they reject Jesus. Kind of makes you think twice before co-signing, doesn't it? You know what co-signing is. You agree to all of the consequences of whatever debt this person has incurred. And so they said, Lord, we're making a vow. We're going to honor you. We're going to obey you. We're going to obey what the Bible says. We're going to let our brothers and our sisters go Because that's what the Bible says to do. And then they break their word. In verse 19, it says the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests and all the peoples of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be meat for the birds of heaven and the beasts of the earth. Let me just be clear here. For the Jew, the worst thing that could happen to a Jew is to die without the benefit of a decent funeral. And so what the Lord is in effect saying is, do you remember when you passed through the butchered calf? Do you you remember how you said, look, whatever happens to this calf, you can make it happen to me. And he says, and I will give Zedekiah, the king of Judah and his princes into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their life and into the hand of king of Babylon's army, which has gone back from you. Behold, I will command, says the Lord, and cause them to return to this city. They will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. And I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. In other words, here's what he's saying. Remember how I said the king's going to come, the king's going to burn the city with fire, and the king's going to take you captive. It's going to happen. Jerusalem will not only be taken by a persistent enemy, but they'll experience the judgment of God. And all of the princes and all of the eunuchs and all of the slave owners and all of the rich people, all of the people who went back on their word. God said, I'm going to chase you down. 
And I'm going to punish you. So, how do we hold on to a world that seems destined for judgment? What do we do with a culture that seems destined to die? I'm going to suggest to you that you do exactly the opposite of what the people in Judah and Jerusalem did. When God says, listen and obey, we listen and we obey. When the Lord says, trust in the provision that I've made to you, all of the promises and the covenants that I've made with you in the person of Jesus Christ, there is love and there is grace and there is mercy. There's a covenant of redemption and reconciliation. You can have it in Jesus. You know, people don't like to be called sinners and they don't even like to repent. In Matthew 3, 7, John the Baptist told the pious, self-righteous people, you generation of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth, therefore, fruit appropriate to repentance. We've been called the church of the comfortable pew and the placid pulpit. But repentance is made up of three things. A change of mind. That is a wish to do good instead of doing evil. Number two, a change of heart. Instead of loving sin, we now set our affection on the things that are above. And number three, there's a change of life. That the change of mind and the change of heart actually results in a different way of living. That you say, I'm going to honor God with my mind and I'm going to honor God with my heart. But I'm also going to honor God with my life. I'm going to love him and I'm going to serve him. And I'm going to read the Bible not because I have to, but because I want to. And I'm going to pray not because I have to, but because I want to. I'm going to go to church because this is where the friendship and fellowship is cultivated. And I'm going to try and figure out what my gifts and my callings are so that I can be used by God in order to remind people. That your mind can change and your heart can change and your life can change. And so, that's how you show when repentance is true and when it's real. Jeremiah reminded the city and the king of the certainty of God's judgment. He was bold. He confronted the king when Babylon had already set a blockade around Jerusalem to starve the city and force surrender. And sometimes we have to confront the people all around us. Even in a world that's destined to die. Even in a country that might be destined for collapse. That we say, it's not too late. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. That if you can hear the voice of God and you can hear the promise of God, then you can obey and turn and live. Next week, the next chapter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, there's so much to learn. It makes sense 
to listen to what God has to say and to obey God's principles. And that, Lord, once we know God's principles and then to disobey again doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So, Lord, we pray that we would be willing to hear what's right and what's good and what's appropriate. And that we would be willing to do what's right, what's good, what's appropriate. We remember what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119.97. Oh, how I love your law. And in your law do I meditate day and night. Lord, we pray that our affection would be on you and our hope would be in the future that you've provided for us in Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand.